she never funny fella. Running amidst the trees. Who's there? I said as I stood in my head. And nobody answered me. This is Bruce. This is John. And this is Blix. Welcome to the second Fringeworthy podcast. Thanks for joining us again. We have some news about the print-on-demand version of our game. We are continuing to try to find somebody who can print this four-color version of Fringeworthy for a reasonable price. And the lowest price we found so far has been with Lulu, which is around $40. And uh, I realize that that's twice the cost of the original uh, PDF. But if you're the kind of person who really wants a book in front of you and in full color, that's not too bad of a price. But we're going to continue with that. And please check back on our uh, news groups and, uh, and for our show notes. And we'll tell you if we ever come up with a better price than that and uh, when we're going to set that up. Also, we're looking at doing a Savage Worlds version. And hopefully we'll have that out a lot quicker than we had the, the, the D20 version out. Because I'd be honest, most of the work is done for us already. We just need to do the system conversion. Right. We had to start off at the very beginning for this new version. We had to examine all our premises, what we wanted to change in the new edition, and so much more. The uh, Savage World is going to be pretty much of a straight conversion with, of course, all the things that make Savage Worlds characters with their edges and flaws what makes a Savage World character. So, But Richard Toholka is fully on board with that, so we should expect that to be coming out uh, real soon now. So uh, it, I'm sure that there's a lot of people, Sean Fannin in particular, who will be really glad to hear about that. So are we talking about next year, like, roughly? I have no idea. Not my project. Okay. <laughs> but as soon as we hear more, uh, I'm sh- I'll be telling Sean Fannin. And those of you who don't know, Sean Fannin is a, is a Savage World developer himself, and he's just released a product earlier this year, right about January. The very first thing he said when he saw the, the files on Fringeworthy that I was showing him on my laptop was, Bruce, why aren't you doing this in Savage Worlds? And, he said, well, because I've spent the last five years working on it in D20 Modern. That's why. So, Oh, Sean Fanta, he used to do – he did some stuff with action, right? And Heroes. Fusion. Yeah, big. Hero Games. He was big time with Hero Games and right. worked on a lot of their projects. And so he's been with the RPG business now for a long, long time. Right. He worked on – you know what? You know, he worked on uh, Shards of the Stone. I think he did some work on that. I think you're right. Uh, also, we uh... – did due diligence, and we made sure that we approved from Pinnacle Games. So it is going to be an official Savage Worlds game when it gets released. You're listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. Okay, the one thing that we want to talk right now about is 
uh, what we refer to as packing for success. And that is, is that you know, just like a lot of games, having the right equipment, the right, you know, if it's a fancy world, the right magic items, the right equipment on your starship, equipment matters. And if you're playing a exploration game where you're going to be cut off from your home base, either by distance or by the ruggedness of the land over which you're traveling, or even just from the time element, it's important to think ahead about maximizing your chances of success by the equipment you choose. So we're going to talk about what we consider to be some of the best things for you to think about as far as picking the right equipment for tricking out your characters and, more importantly, your team to be successful. Now, we've split this up into a number of different categories. What we consider to be the most important categories as far as packing is communication, data gathering, life support, protection, and transport. This podcast, we're going to be talking about communication. What kind of communication gear do you think is essential, John? Oh, definitely a radio. You probably even want to consider taking along a several, several different types Everything from from a ham radio station to well a crystal radio set because those things work no matter what, as long as you have some sort, as long as you have enough uh, enough antenna for them to work with. The big question is how badly will I be stuck in some place backwards? Is how primitive you make your communications equipment. A crystal radio set you're going to do uh, Morse code at best. You won't be able to do any voice broadcasts. With a ham radio set, you'll be able to bounce off and send signals around the world if you want to. But as I said, the ham radio requires batteries, requires energy, requires power. You really have to ask yourself, how badly are we going to screw the pooch that won't be able to keep that ham radio running? So that's one of your first uh, big questions is what's the minimum kind of communications equipment you need to worry about? And I would say I'd keep around like the handheld or, or at least the head-mounted walkie-talkies because those can use re- rechargeable batteries and they'll last for a fairly long time before the batteries themselves wear out from, from use. And you can always use a hand crank generator to recharge them if, you, if need be. Right. Well, why is communication so important? Aren't you guys always just going to be standing right next to each other when you're exploring? Oh, well, depends on how devious the GM is or whether and how realistic the players want to play it. Is there logical reasons to split up and, and be in separate groups? In most battles, especially historical, what they refer to as the fog of war was where one side didn't know what the other side was doing and had no way of getting communication over to the other side. So having an effective means of communication for, for over a dis- any distance could make a huge difference strategically and tactically in any operation that you might want to do. That's right. Absolutely. But these devices can be very covert. My players always like to talk about it using uh, sublingual type devices where they literally are whispering and still communicating with each other, where they can actually get the drop on people. They can be telling information about what they're seeing, what they're doing to other players who are playing characters, and the people around them have no idea what's going on. And so this can tactically make a huge difference. If you were doing an impersonation where somebody was going to walk in and and have to be able to know certain things, if you have one person who's in there who's already listened to what people were saying, doing things, then he could pass he or she can pass that information off to people out room. They come in, they're like amazing. Oh, how'd you know that? Oh, well, this is nothing to us. You know, we can handle this sort of thing easily. 
effective communication can make a big difference. That's one of the main reasons that I like, you know, really good communication. Also, one of the biggest problems that my players have run into has been that they're constantly losing track of where the portal is. Hmm. So setting up a good homing beacon and, and, and actually putting homing beacons in practically every piece of important equipment, like your laptops, you know, those, those pieces of equipment we just said we don't want to fall in the hands of people, lowjacking everything that, that might be able to change the course of history if it fell in the wrong hands. That can make a big difference as far as the way your missions go, rather than saying, oh, well, gee, I guess, you know, he got his hands on that piece of equipment that the next generation of computer system is based on. Oh, yeah, he got that. No, no big deal. He yeah. got my tricorder, you know. Yeah, exactly. You know, but it, and it has yeah, the my, chip in it that everything is based on. You know, got my Terminator hand and uh, memory chip. Right. You'd think that somebody would lowjack that. Another thing that we do in our game is we carry portable Wi-Fi systems so that the guy who's up on the top of the tree taking a look around, he actually has a camera up there, and everybody down on the ground can see what he's seeing over, you know, on, on their laptops through a Wi-Fi session. His webcam. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, so that, without that communication, you got to wait till the guy either lowers the camera down and then view it and send it back up. You know, it's, it's not as efficient. It loses the immediacy of the moment. A really good Wi-Fi situation allows you to introduce advanced robotics, Waldos, which are remote control devices for those who are not familiar with that term. There's really, you know, uh, some of the stuff that's going on at MIT, you guys might want to check into that on the web about what, what can be done with what's called telepresence. And that's all through effective use of communication. You pop onto a world that is current or say a little bit in the future suddenly you're not all together that covert anymore so you need other means of communicating as well wouldn't you if you had a, a pen the space pen that can write underwater yep mm -hmm. there's worlds around there where you might need something that could write underwater or even something that could write on a piece of paper and be indelible most of the ink throughout history could be destroyed just by washing some paper and some water over it or, or maybe an acidic solution like some lemon juice. So having a pen or something like that that wrote in an ink that would be permanent could change an entire culture. And learning the Morse code never hurts either, you know, because you may be a situation where, yeah, I can't. It hurts, it hurts my brain. <laughs> hurts your brain. One of my early Fringeworthy campaigns back in the 80s, uh, they were in two separate Jeeps, and they're driving on the old 10-foot-wide pathways. And, yeah, it was very important to have a good set of hand signals to let the guy know behind you that you're going to stop and not have him ram you off the pathway in the process. So, yeah, there's all kinds of communications you got to consider, as well as the long-distance ones. As well. okay. We used to, like, beg the other players, uh, those of us who have been playing for a while, it's like, when you make up your character, make sure he knows sign language. Or at least a, a relatively low level of it, because you can pass information between each other in a crowded room easily. But not, maybe not covertly, because usually those those hand signals are pretty obvious. Yeah, but I'm I'm just saying that if if you're on a balcony and one of your guys is down below, you could pass on a, a quick information to them. Right, I, I agree. That that would be good. And of course, this equipment. Speaking more specifically to the equipment, he says, you know, make sure you have things like repeaters so that you're not limited to just the range of whatever is the standard five-mile walkie-talkie you have. 
there's devices called repeaters where every three miles you drop it down and it'll record a signal and then transmit it on to the next repeater. And so you can uh, provide a net, you know, a web or, or even just a, a long string of, of communication so that if you are separated long distances, for whatever reason, uh, you'd be able to keep in, in contact with each other. Hmm. Vehicles, because they're bigger, they can actually have much more powerful transmitters than a handheld device that you might be carrying with you. Oh, yeah. Okay. If you consider this, most of the vehicles you're going to get will probably have standard military communication systems on them because that's going to be the most rugged and, well, dirt simple systems to work with. So, yeah, you just simply assume that your vehicle is going to have a standard mill grade communication systems that are fairly bulletproof. And Which will also include a good data link. That's true. And you'll be able to transmit for hundreds of miles with those things as long as you have them powered. Since power doesn't work on the fringe path, you won't have that. However, once you get onto the world, if you have a vehicle, it's a fairly easy possibility of going and charging it up and, and have all the power you need. If you're planning on going on a more of a self-service, uh, independent type thing, there are good solar cell batteries out there now that can go through a couple thousand charges and, and, and cycles that you can set up a uh, homing device where it'll charge up during the daytime and keep bleeping or whatever. You can also give this kind of equipment to your friends on these worlds. It just amazes me how many times the players in my campaign go through a world and they make friends with somebody and then they come back and they're gone and they don't know where they went. And they have no way of, of finding them other than literally going and searching the area for hundreds of miles because maybe another tribe came in and chased them off. Anything that was possible, the, the one person that they had a good relationship with has disappeared and they don't know how to reach them. Having something as simple as a, as a walkie-talkie or a, a specific radio band in which you're going to communicate with people can make all the difference in a continuing campaign because as a GM... It's a lot of work to create new worlds all the time, and you're going to want to leverage ex previous worlds that you've created and have more than one adventure on them. And going back to previous worlds is great for the players because they don't have to go to that first contact. They know a lot more about this world already, and they want to have that contact. They want those people to be there. And instead of having these people standing around with nothing to do, like in a computer game where all the NPCs stand around until you show back up again, these people can have lives. They can go around. They can become the president of the country. They can go off to war. They can be traitors and, and go to other cities and still be able to communicate back with the fringeworthy people when they show up again because you've given them a method of communicating. Yeah, yeah. communication really keeps an adventure on track. You know, we lost like an hour or two of the game just trying to find each other or trying to find our contact. Take a tip of a hat from the CIA and the KGB. There's various ways of using various drops and so forth to keep in contact with people. Say if you actually have Deep Scout, people who are actually fringeworthy, you know, IDEP teams are on that world. They're going to be there for a year or so, and they don't want to show off any high-tech equipment. They may actually use the good old-fashioned dead drops near the portal where you pick up information and see what's happening and know if they're in trouble or not. They may actually have a radio, but they only use it in extreme emergencies, so they won't blow their cover. You know, let's say you had a covert team in a town that had very low technology, like you know, 1920s or something like that. 
you might even consider, you know, having a code system to where every Monday there's going to be a, like the classifieds where they're going to leave a certain message in there that will instruct you if you know the code where to find them and when to meet them. And if you were doing like say a near past adventure, you know, if you go into some world where all they've got is AM radio and you've got these high tech microwave devices, you're not going to be able to communicate effectively with the people around you. You may not even be able to receive their radio signals. You've got to have your equipment robust enough and broad enough in, on a technological base to be able to pick, pick up and effectively use all kinds of different kinds of communications. So right. you want to be able to broadcast on the radio, uh, on the AM bands as well as the FM bands, as well as military microwave and, and anything else. When you get your equipment, if you look in the book and it says it does AM walkie-talkie, well, you might want to say to your GM, okay, I want more than that. I need this and this and this. And maybe you need to create a piece of equipment that isn't necessarily listed in your game book and say, uh, I need something that does, you know, an all-band radio. And while I'm at it, put one of those cranks on it, where if I crank on it for five minutes, it gives me enough power so that I can use it effectively for the next hour. Right. You know? I actually got one of those. It actually does AM, FM, and, and several short bands. So, yeah, it, it's be a way to make sure you, you get various communications back right. and forth. And, like, and everything's by radio, too. Sometimes the easiest thing is you is looking for that little smoke signal on the hill. And if it's effect and if it's appropriate, don't be afraid to hand those things out. Other people can really benefit from that sort of thing. If every homestead in a farming community had a radio and they when Johnny fell down the well, they could call, you know, rather than ringing the bell and hoping the next farm over could send the signal along, if they could just get on the radio and say, "Hey, you know, I've got a problem or, you know, hey, send Doc Smith out here to my horse just went into labor. These things make a big difference to communities. When emergencies come up and they don't have an effective means of communications, you can really make a difference as to how the community views you. It may start off as thinking that you're, you know, demons or strangers, but at the end you might end up being heroes. It sounds like you're giving them like a steampunk internet. <laughs> Whatever works. Yeah, yeah. No, that's cool. That's cool. It's just, yeah. it's kind of funny. Well, so, uh, Steampunk Internet is actually telegraph, but that's you know besides the point. I don't see our players uh, stringing up telegraph lines, you know, to communicate over with. No. Right. Not if they have something as simple as AM radio available to them. Right. Yeah. Again, it depends on whether or not you're trying to create a sustainable technology, whether or not you plan on coming back. I mean, it could just simply be a gift where you're saying, okay, here's a dozen walkie-talkies. Here's a bunch of solar cell chargers for these things. They're going to run out in, in about two years. We should be back by then to give you better ones or replace them, but just use them effectively. Hope they help your life. That can be a good thing, bad thing. I mean, that's where the, the GM gets to play. Right. And so come back and find out. Oh yeah, very good at communications. We went out the same next door because of that. But thank you. Lots of people get their hands on things like that, and as I say, they find themselves effectively much better fighters. That that can be a good thing and a bad thing. You know, in a game like Fringeworthy, you're always at, have to ask yourself: When I take this action, what's going to be the long-term consequences? I I give this device to you in trade for mostly information. Because that's the number one thing that Fringeworthy Explorers need more than anything else is information. Giving them something, a high-tech device that's going to break eventually is not a bad idea as long as they can't reproduce it. 
it all depends on the society. If it gets branded as a demon and they come hunting for you with the pitchforks, it's not such a good idea to give that guy your Nintendo. Right. <laughs> Is there any other forms of communication we should be talking about? No, I think that uh, I think it pretty much covers it. Okay. It wasn't a, a very big one. It's, I think it's an essential area that characters and, and GMs need to think about. You know, what kind of communications are available in the world, first of all, but also how are the players going to use their communications effectively to not only communicate with other people, but also amongst themselves. Remember, when you pull into a world that's situated around during the uh, turn of the 20th century, like 1900s, there's not much broadcast radio, but there's sure a lot of Morse going on out there in the airwaves. So sometimes you, you know, having been the one person who can read Morse may come in handy. And party line telephones. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. That's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. There was one opera, Mabel, and she'd plug you in and listen to the conversation at the same time. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Mabel knew everything. Right. Listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. We do have some player mail, and uh, we want to encourage uh, all the listeners and posters on all the boards that are Fringeworthy to please you know, send us mail and ask us questions about the game and, and how to more effectively play, cert- add certain things to their game or do things in the game. So this particular piece of player mail came from James Buchanan. He asked, is it possible to have a Fringeworthy mail service? In other words, you know, you're out there on the fringe path, and how does your mail get to you? How do you communicate back with IDET? Every time you want to talk to somebody or send a report in, do you have to get in your vehicle and drive all the way back to IDET, you know, which might be hundreds of miles? Or is there actually a mail service out there whose job is to bring the mail to you and collect the mail from you? That's a good point because when I ran my campaign back in the 80s, I put about 20 years in the future and, and I had the fringe-worthy out about 50 platforms so that's what close to a thousand miles it's more than a thousand miles john you're right it is because 50 miles per link yeah. so it's <laughs> 50 times 50 2500 okay so it's two and a half thousand miles okay there we yeah, go. almost the distance across our country <laughs> yeah. in the united states yeah at 30 miles an hour that's back in the day when we had 10 foot eight foot wide eight foot wide thank you eight foot wide uh, pathways you're afraid of driving off them <laughs> yeah. yeah 30 miles an hour so that's a very long trip a mail service actually is important. I mean, you need some sort of courier system to go back and forth. I would imagine in that situation, they'd be riding motorcycles and they'd be the, the craziest daredevils you ever met in your life. Well, right. To me, the, the biggest question here is, is that when would fringeworthy people be available for this? Is this what would be considered to be an essential job? Because if it is, then somebody would, would be available for this right off the bat. But if it, it wasn't considered an essential job, then it would fall to people who didn't want to be explorers. Initially, everybody who went into IDET would be practically have their arms broken if they didn't want to be an explorer, because that was you know what they were trying to do. How soon do you think, Blanks, that they could something like a, a mail service could be established on the fringe pass? Well, I think first off, if it was like close by, it would be probably be more likely and more used. But if you're talking about, you know, going out 50 platforms, they would have to be mission specific. So if you had like an important mission out there 
you would have your group of people who were male providers, and I'll get to exactly what JS means in just a second. I just want to get this cleared out. You would have like a group of mailmen, basically, and you know they'd be charged to do runs, and they would have a schedule. Where you're gonna be like, okay, well, in uh, in two days we need to meet up with this group at a certain time to deliver their mail. So then they would head out. But how long would it take? I think, I think it only take like maybe one or two years because what would happen is is the necessity for it would become exceptionally apparent uh, as soon as you lost contact with a group and you're like, well, are they coming back or not? I don't know. Or if they were at their station, they're like, well, we don't have enough gas to drive back and then come back out here. So, you know, we, we need advice, but what are we going to do? We're going to bag the mission. So, yeah, I don't think it would take very long. But but I also think it would be the further out you you went would be would be reflective of how important the mission was. And since there's eight portals on mm-hmm. each alternate platform, and of course there's eight portals on a prime platform, and then there's eight portals on the system platform, and even more out there on the star platforms, depending upon your campaign, if you actually are exploring all of these platforms, that's an awful lot of portals. You're not going to be finding fringeworthy people that fast. And even using the active search mechanism for finding it, one out of 100,000 people you know, you'll find the people in the big cities, sure, but the people spread out of the countryside, you, know, you can't just fly over it at, at 400 miles an hour and think you're going to be able to pick up somebody blipping by you, below you. Therefore, your teams are not going to go out 50 platforms in the first year. So there's going to be a time that the GM is going to decide this, you know, based upon how he runs this campaign, you know, how far out are these guys are away from Earth Prime, are they going to be exploring? And that's going to be a big factor, I would think. If you're exploring out 50 platforms, then you're definitely going to need uh, some kind of communication method so that you can put up a mail drop and and not have to go all the way back to Earth Prime in order to, to send in your progress report. Okay. One of the things that concerns me about setting up a mail service in the early days, there's also no security out there. There's nobody out there to protect these mailmen in any way. There's fringe pirates out there. There are uh, some of the uh, fringe weather, the bad storms, can actually hurt somebody big time. I would think that a mailman would be at least a pair. You know? Oh, yeah. And these vehicles, of course, since they're driving so much, there's going to be breakdowns and, and repair issues. I mean, that could be adventure in itself for a character, you know, an NPC, a mailman. You know, or if you wanted to, you could even run a campaign of being the mail service. But <laughs> I'm just saying, is it, okay, I'm out there and my vehicle breaks down. Now i got to go to a world and try to get a replacement vehicle that will run on the fringe pass. Or I'm going to have to you know, find a part that will be compatible with my vehicle, which might not be so easy on an alternate Earth, and somehow get back. That's why I agree with you, Blinks, that, that probably they would start small with just only three platforms out either direction at the uh, speaking of the alternates and then uh, and maybe having one one that just goes back and forth along the alternates because they're all linked together via the alternate platforms so you could just have somebody put like a, a stand out there with a mail bag you know with a little flag on it or something like right. that you know but they're going to be really in danger of running into fringe pirates because that's where all the fringe pirates are going to be showing up too why wouldn't they capture the mailman or perhaps even like a, a Meller. He's like, oh, this is the guy that's transporting information back and forth. 
Yeah, why wouldn't the mailer not want to be the mailman? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Right, because he's the one that's handling all the information, and information right. is power. One of the things about my players, they call them breadcrumbs. If they're investigating an alternate platform, they would actually leave like a little pat parcel under the ring they're investigating. So yes, it means you have to go around and look at all the rings, but you, you at least might know of which ring they're in. At that point, you have the little breadcrumb sitting there telling you know, where they are and how long they expect to be gone and so forth. You probably want to do it like they do with the post office, which is you don't do the whole 50 platform run. You do 10 platforms and you go off to and you transfer off to someone else who then does another 10 platforms. And like a Pony Express, only you're not changing horses, you're changing drivers. But that requires a lot more fringeworthy. When, when I would see it, I would say when you actually have more fringeworthy to do it, postman may also be the gas guy, too, who shows up and gives you extra gas for your vehicles. You know, he does hmm. more than one thing. He delivers your mail. He, you know, he delivers extra supplies that you need. Also, you know, he has a big two thousand gallon tank on the back of his vehicle to deliver gasoline if you need it, or in this case, diesel fuel. Or actually, think of it this way: I bet they've made friends with other worlds. They could set up a relay system, so where their postal service isn't just from I bet. It's in conjunction with a network of other worlds that they've made contacts with. So you wouldn't have to drive out 50 platforms. you drive out 10 and pass on to the next guy. He would drive out 10 and pass on to the next guy. It would make perfect sense that every set of platforms, what I refer to as a node, which is right. like a prime, alternate, system, star platform link, you know, list, that they would be at least one world on the alternate platform where you've set up a, a pocket stop or preferably a world where you know, they actually have you know, a close to modern technology where you could leave equipment, where you could train somebody there to maintain it so that you could get equipment. You don't have to drive that vehicle 2,500 miles before it gets serviced. You drive a vehicle maybe 500 miles, put it into a world and get a new vehicle, then they're servicing it in the meantime. Yeah, it's like a UPS distribution center. Right. Basically, any convenient pocket stop that doesn't have any weird problems with it, like the ones you, you know, in one, in one end, out the other end. But any convenient pocket stop would probably turn into a supply base. Right. Well, one of the reasons that I saw this is not happening immediately is the fact is that I see that being populated by people who don't want to be explorers. You know, there's going to be a lot of people out there that think about going out and camping in the wilderness and, and running into people that, you know, might want to kill them because they look different and and possibly running into the Meller because, you know, once they find out that the Meller are on a lot of worlds out there, but they they have trouble getting on the fringe pass, well, I'm not going to go. Th These people are saying, I don't, I'll join your IDET, uh, or not IDET, I'll join, you know, the IDA, but I'm not going through any portals. Uh-uh, I'll be glad to ride along the, the, the pathways and pick up stuff and drop stuff off, but I'm not going to expose myself to that kind of danger. That's you know, true. So not everyone is, is going to be willing to do that. That's why we, we talked about the truckers, the long-haul truckers who carry, you know, unlike the mail guys, they actually carry big, huge chunks of equipment from one world to another, either because we have trade with that world or because they're resupplying pocket stops or picking up vehicles from one place, like, like one of those guys who works for uh, some of the car companies where you have like the one-way rentals. Somebody mm -hmm. has to drive that car back to a distribution center. 
So right. the truckers basically pick up cars and bring them around, or because fringeworthy cars are are not the same as regular cars. They're designed no. for traveling in a place where there's no electricity. There's special equipment that's required. So I saw these people as not being explorers, and therefore it has to be far enough down the timeline where IDET's willing to hire people who are not fringeworthy explorers to do things that are not exploration oriented. And don't forget, yeah, but, too, that within what, the first five years, we're going to meet and make contacts, uh, six other races, seven other races, within that s- small six-node area. It's really a two-year period. You're right. It's two years, isn't it? Yeah, it's nothing. Victorians but we run first. In, but we run into the Mallor within four years. Yeah, so we run into the Victorians first, and they're already in the platforms running it. Then we run into, I can't remember the, the exact time scale, but pretty much we... we work our way out and we we actually have this little network built already and that might actually be enough to do a, some sort of relay system like Blix mentioned right maybe you your mail service might not actually come from earth i mean maybe you know <laughs> maybe some guys from the pox romana they don't have our modern technology but they can drive a vehicle yeah, sure. They may not be someone that you might want to bring into the uh, the team as a full-blown explorer Right. So a lot of the worlds that Earth Prime is communicating with, especially the prime worlds that are listed in the book, a lot of those people are of a lower technological base than uh, Prime is. And those people might be fringeworthy, but they might not have the education to actually be an effective explorer on equal to another team member. So they might not want to be in an exploration team. However, they might be able to learn how to drive. Like, for example, the Golden Horde, they love riding horses. They love riding across the plains. Well, you know, hey, I'm now riding across the interdimensional plane in my big iron horse. So it would be pretty much the same thing. And I could see uh, some of those guys giving up their little uh, ponies and, and taking riding something. Riding a hog. Yeah, with a couple hundred horsepower under it. Yeah. Yeah, right. So you got anything else, uh, Otto, you want to add? No, I think I think that about covers covers the mail service thing. I, I think we, we covered that pretty good. Yeah. So it's a, it's a good idea. The GM yeah. has to decide when to introduce it, and he has to decide who's going to staff it and where the equipment dumps are going to be set up. Who's going to protect the mail service? Is the mail service going to be going onto worlds to pick up the mail, or is this going to be some kind of a drop where they're literally riding, you know, driving along the the pathways along the alternates and just seeing a mail bag with a flag up next to it and grabbing it and throwing it into the back of a Humvee and uh, continuing its route and then circling back and storing the mail in the safety of his depot. Right, right. So, yep. When we encounter the, the fringe pirates. Then you go probably see that Humvee with some guy sitting up in the pintle mount with a machine gun, riding shotgun at that point, too. Well, my French pirates have 20-millimeter uh, cannons on their vehicles, so uh, I think uh, <laughs> uh, you, you tell me how that works. So. Well, right. well, how to run your uh, pirates is a whole different topic, so yeah. we'll get into that later. But uh, that's, that's a good point. So, yes, yeah, so we agree. Good idea, but there's a lot of details that you have to work out. Right. It's going to be different in every campaign, so we really encourage the GMs to really put their imagination to it and have some fun with it. Well, thanks for listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast once again. We hope that the tips we've handed you will help you run a successful Fringeworthy game. If there's anything that you have any questions about or anything that you think we should expand on further, please go to our message boards at uh, www 
tritaggamers.com and post us a message and we'll respond as soon as we can. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. This is Bruce Sheffer from Atlanta saying, remember, there are millions of worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John from Seattle, and remember, keep your powder dry and keep those cards and layers coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, don't shoot the portals. They shoot back. Thank you.